name is Randy. I'm one of the elders here at uh, Midlands Church. And uh, I would like to ask you to stand with me as I read um, from God's Word this week's passage. It's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17 and 18. It says, Then when we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this time to be able to come together. Uh, we thank you for just the encouragement that are in um, the words that Paul wrote. Um, that as believers, we're going to always be with you. And we've got that hope of eternity in heaven with you. And that should be an encouragement to us. I pray that you'll be with us throughout this time, um, that you'll speak, um, and that you will uh, speak and overcome my inadequacies, Father, and, and, uh, and share your word today. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you going to have a seat? Okay, so we are in the next to the last week of our summer series, which is the One Another series. Um, last week I did announcements, and I got confused. And I thought Matt was preaching, and it was actually Justin. Um, this week I remembered, thankfully, who's preaching. Um, well, you'll, I say thankfully, you may be. We'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see if you're thankful. Um, and it is a little cooler in here uh, than it was last week. So uh, I was a little concerned that I need to wear a tank top and shorts or, or what. So for your sake and mine, it, it feels really, really good in here. Um, but today is, today's emphasis is on the need to encourage one another. And uh, I want to get into that and get into scripture about that, but before I want to do that, I want to talk a little bit about my, my wife, Leanne. Leanne is a big encouragement to me. Um, guys, those of you that are married, uh, um, it's, it's a big help when your wife is a, is a strong believer and is a big encouragement um, to you. And you need to know a little bit about me if you don't already know. Um, I'm an engineer. We've got a few engineers here. Um, engineers are weird. Can I get an amen from the wives on that one? Uh, we're different. Um, there are some of y'all that actually are weird enough to be engineers. I don't know if you are, uh, but we'll see. Um, but engineers are just different. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm a registered engineer, which means I went to an accredited school. I worked for four years under a, kind of as an apprentice uh, under a, a registered professional engineer and took my exam and that was a that was a fun eight hours and that was the second exam we had to take um, and became an engineer but a few years later i felt called um, to go get another degree and i actually didn't think i was going to get a degree uh, leanne <laughs> she actually knew better than i did for sure um, but i thought i was just going to go get 20 hours and and be able to be a missionary with the international mission board i was going to get 20 hours at seminary and go into the mission field full-time. Well, um, that was not God's plan. Leanne kind of knew that a long time before I did. But eventually, um, I completed a Master of Divinity degree. And this is all while I was uh, still engineer, working as engineer. And those two degrees are very, they're both pretty difficult, but they're totally opposite. Um, so I'm, I'm weirder than you think I am. <laughs> being an engineer, but then also having um, a seminary degree. And I struggled with that because I felt called to the ministry, but I didn't feel called to leave my current job as an engineer. So it was just this weird, what am I doing? Why, why did I get my um, Master of Divinity degree? Why did God call me to that when he clearly also called me to be an engineer? And every once in a while, Leanne uh, kind of reminds me um, and encourages me. And this, uh, this past summer, she was reviewing some, um, some of the school stuff. We homeschool. And guys, you know, when I say we homeschool, you know what that means. <laughs> uh, we homeschool. Um, but Leanne was reviewing um, documents and things. And it's, um, it was a course um, to basically help our girls kind of see what would be a good career. Uh, choice for them on down the road. Sierra went through it and Leah just had gone through it. But um, Leanne was reading, kind of reviewing over the book, filling out all of her records for homeschooling. And, um, and she came across this paragraph. And it was very helpful to me 
um, as an engineer, because when I, I retired from the DOT three years ago, and everybody thought I was going to go into full-time ministry, and I didn't. I went to work for a consultant, and it may be a point in time where I go into what is considered full-time ministry uh, in a church or anything like that, but it, we're a church plant. We don't have a single person that works for this church full-time. Everybody that's involved with this church um, has a job somewhere else. So this was the encouraging thing she read to me. Is this guy, and he's talking, and he felt called to the ministry of some sort, but he was an, he was an engineer of all things. So um, he's talking to this guy, uh, this, this pastor is, and uh, he's trying to encourage him that he's actually in full-time ministry already. He said, I'll just read it here. He said, I believe he was able to see that God needs ambassadors who will go into the workplace as engineers or whatever your profession is, just the same as he needs pastors who will teach and prepare such ambassadors. And this is the, this is the sentence that was really encouraging to me that kind of let me know that I'm, I'm doing what God's called me to do. It said, after all, most unsaved people will never go to church, but they will go to work. So whatever you do, uh, whatever you're in school for, uh, to train, um, just be encouraged that God's going to use that. And you're going to be, in, if you're a believer, you're in full-time ministry, no matter where you are. So it's all right. So let's get, let's get started. Um, so the first thing I need to do is to tell you that I've already told you something that's not true. It's true that Leanne is an encouragement to me, so it's not that. But I told you my name was Randy, and that's actually not my name. Um, it's what people have called me my entire life. Um, so I don't ever remember being called anything else. But my real name is Randall Dwayne Williamson. That's my legal name. That was my given name by my parents. Randy's just a nickname. Um, and one thing about our society, Western society, is our names really don't say a lot about who we are. Um, they say more about our parents. They say what names our parents liked, or maybe we're named after somebody that our parents admired, or, or a relative. Um, so my name's Randy, and I've gone by that for forever. But when I moved from fifth to sixth grade, I was like ready to grow up and quit going by this little boy's name. And so um, I just finished at Brooklyn Grammar and I started at Northside Middle School and this is the old Northside. Um, there's a new one now. And so I'm there and so I'm gonna tell my teachers, all right, I'm gonna go with another name. Not that this was better, uh, but I was 10, so forgive me. So I, the first class, and this is the first time I had like more than one teacher. So I'm going and telling all these teachers I'm like, all right, my name's Ran, like R-A-N, like that's better. Um, uh, so anyway, I thought it was better than Randy, but it was not as fancy as Randall, and I even thought about Rand, but Rand McNally, Roadmaps, you know, there actually used to be things called maps that we used. Um, so I didn't go with that one. Now here's the funny thing, so I'm sitting there and I got a buddy of mine that went to grammar school with me the whole time, and he's like, that's the stupidest name ever. Like, why, everybody knows your name's Randy. Why are you telling Rand? That's stupid. Now, the funny thing was, his name was William Newton Fowler. And he did not go by William, nor did he go by Newton. His, we all called him Bunky. <laughs> so I got name shamed by Bunky Fowler, <laughs> which is why I stand before you today as a 55-year-old man named Randy. But Randy is not, that's not my given name. So what's in a name? Well, let's talk a little bit about that. Our, our Western culture, like I said, it doesn't really tell you a lot about yourself. Your name doesn't say much about you, but nicknames do. Um, I only know a couple of people in my life whose names said anything about them. One of them was my grandfather. My grandfather um, was born in 1896. He was the third of 10 children. His older brother, oldest brother, was born premature in 1893 and so they were just really focused on him and then he had another brother that was born in between them and he actually passed away while his mom was pregnant with him so when my grandfather was born um, they didn't actually name him and that that sounds kind of cruel but it was actually pretty typical back in that time if you've spent any time in an older cemetery you can walk around and see 
tombstones of infant son, infant daughter, where they just, there was a high infant mortality rate. And a lot of times they would not name children until they were one or two years old. So my grandfather didn't have a name. Um, and so he, because they were so focused on taking care, like his um, brother that was born a year and a half before him had just died. His oldest brother was born premature and was still very sickly. They were focused, the parents were focused on his brother. And so my grandfather's grandmother took care of him. And so, and she called him her little chum. Now, I know what that word means, um, but let me make sure y'all do. <laughs> because chum isn't just what you put out when you're fishing for sharks, okay? Chum, back in uh, the day, meant best friend or little buddy. Like, this was my pal. And so his grandma would take him around, and she, would, she took care of him all the time, and she called him her little chum. Well, uh, about... When my grandfather was about four or five months old, she was killed um, in a horse and buggy accident. This is before cars. Um, and so they never gave him a name. They always just called him Chum. And when he was older, they said, you can pick a name now. He's like 12 or 13. They said, you can pick a name if you want it. And he's like, why? You know, my name's Chum, so everybody calls me. But even that name doesn't really tell you much about my grandfather. It tells you more about the relationship um, with his grandmother. Now, my family, especially my mom's side of the family, is, has some of the most horrible names ever. Like, my grandfather's oldest brother, I'm not going to tell you his name, because it was horrible. Um, but out of those 10 kids, the baby was Theoxena, was her name, um, which is interesting enough, but we didn't call her that. Everybody called her Aunt Tick. Okay, now bear with me. It's not as horrible as it sounds. She didn't remind us of a blood-sucking arachnid. <laughs> she actually has a very cute uh, reason why she was called that. When she was a little, little girl, um, she would get up super early in the morning and she would run into her parents' bedroom and jump on her, on her daddy and say, TikTok, daddy, it's time to get up. And so he, he started calling her TikTok and it just got shortened to tick. So. Having people named Chum and Tick in my family, are, it's the norm, okay? But even that name doesn't really say a lot about um, her, other than what she used to say when she was a little girl. So um, let's talk a little bit about some societies that actually use names that mean something. Um, the indigenous people in North America, uh, Native American tribes, um, a lot of times they would name somebody and then as they got older, they would give them a second name that was more descriptive of them. And some of them are really cool names that you've heard of, like Crazy Horse, that's a cool name. Um, Sitting Bull, uh, Standing Bear, these are, these, are, these are cool names. Well, in 1991, my sister and I went on vacation. She, she'd been married about a year and her husband uh, is now a retired Marine, but he was deployed and she was a school teacher and so I just took like time off from work and we went camping out west. And one of the places we went was the Battle of Little Bighorn. This is where Custer's last stand was. And if you know anything about history, um, it was just a massacre. And the, the American troops for all, every one of them was killed. And they actually buried them where they died. And so up this hill, you can actually go out there and see the tombstones where they actually fell. And you can see where George Custer fell. He's since been um, reburied in Arlington, but that was 1991. Um, Leanne and the girls went back out there in 2009, and there was nothing before about the tribes. There was nothing about the Sioux. There was nothing about the Northern Cheyenne. There was nothing about the Arapaho. In 2009, there was a monument dedicated to those, the braves that fought in this battle. So, um, I'm reading this thing, and there's a quote by a guy that's the chief of the Crow tribe. He wasn't in the battle. Um, I think he actually passed away before it happened, but they had his quote on this monument. Now, this guy's name, it's not as cool as Crazy Horse, okay? Uh, this guy's name was Chief Rottenbelly. Now, the mature side of me wants to think that uh, kind of like Sam Houston, he received maybe an abdominal injury in a great battle and it wouldn't heal and that's how he got that name 
But there's the immature side of me that is much more prominent, which makes me think that that guy probably, I don't know, maybe ate a lot of fiber and he wasn't fun to sit around after dinner. I don't know. But his name, he was named Rotten Belly for a reason. Okay? All right, stick with me. One more nickname story. So I'm of an... When I was a senior in high school, there was this guy that... Um, football player, and uh, he was highly recruited by everybody. Uh, his name's William Perry. Some of you may know who that is. Some of you don't have a clue because this is a long time before you were born. But this guy, when he was a senior in high school, his playing weight was 295 pounds. When he was a freshman, he was over 300 pounds. Now, today, that seems to be typical. Like, you can look at USC's linemen. They're all about 300 pounds. It was unheard of back then. Not only was he a big boy, but he was super athletic. He could do a 360 dunk on a regulation basketball goal. That's a lot of weight that's going up there. Um, he was a freshman, same age as me at Clemson. Um, he was just an amazing athlete, fast. He could run an 11-second 100 at 300 pounds. That's crazy. I saw him chase down quarterbacks from behind, which is impressive. I also saw him chase down running backs from behind, which is super impressive. So what's this guy's nickname? Some of y'all know it. Um, so he gets this name. He's, he's at an elevator in the dorm where a lot of the football players lived at Clemson. And he's standing there, and he's 6'2", and he's probably 310 pounds at this point, and he's holding his laundry basket. And he's on the elevator. He's going to ride down to do his laundry. And one of, his, one of the upperclassmen teammates gets on and he can barely fit in the elevator with him. And he said, man, you're as big as a refrigerator. And the name stuck because it described him. He was as big as a refrigerator. So William, the refrigerator period, the fridge, he scored a touchdown in the Super Bowl. Um, he's a big old boy. That nickname describes him a little bit. So why am I torturing you with all of these stories about names and nicknames? Because Names used to mean something, and nicknames still mean something. Randall doesn't tell you anything about who I am. Bunky, maybe that tells you a little bit about him, but it really doesn't tell you anything about him. Well, if we're talking about encouragement, and if we're really going to get into that, I think it's important for us to talk about somebody, at least part of the time this morning, that was a real encourager. And of course I'm talking about Joseph, right? But not Mary's husband. There's another Joseph. So you don't have to flip with me, but I'm going to be reading through some verses um, throughout Acts uh, as we get back into our Thessalonian verse. But let me read this to you. This is in the early church, brand new church, as the church begins. And it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, as for many were owners of lands or houses, and they sold them, and they brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now here's Joseph. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So this guy's name is Joseph, but nobody called him that except for maybe his mama because he was so much of an encourager that they gave him the nickname son of encouragement. So... How did he get that nickname? What did he do? What were some of the things that, that Barnabas did that made his friends and the people around him call him son of encouragement? Um, now, I remember, I remember Ian's last sermon here. Um, he talked about, as a young man, that Paul was his guy. He wanted to be bold like Paul. And I think that's probably pretty common. Most people, when you think about the New Testament, you think about someone who really helped spread the gospel. Paul's somebody that comes to mind. Um, but every Paul needs a Barnabas. 
So we're going to kind of look at that and see what kind of things Barnabas did that earned him that nickname. And while we're doing this, I also want to think of it, I want you to think, if you had a nickname that described you, what would it be? Would it be son of encouragement? Would it be son of griping? Son of complaining? Son of discouragement? Like we, need, we need to think about that as believers and how we interact with each other. So, um, so what are some things that Barnabas did that encouraged others? One of the things that he did, uh, we just read about, is he uh, encouraged the early church by his example. Now, Barnabas is literally in the first church plant. So we can relate to the fact a church plant doesn't have a lot of money, right? You know, we're trying to just make it to next week. And so here we are, we're reading about this, the original church plant. And they're realizing that, hey, this stuff is not ours. This is stuff that God has blessed us with. And so he comes, sells a piece of property. We really don't know, was he wealthy? We don't know. It could have been the only piece of property he owned. But whatever, he sold it and came and brought it and gave that money to the apostles and said, use it however it needs to be used and whoever could use it. He was an encouragement to others, and others in the church did this. But they didn't all do it with the right motivation. Um, right after this, these verses about our introduction to Barnabas, there was a couple named Ananias and Sapphira, and they did the same thing. They sold a piece of property, and they gave money to the church. It's not a problem with that. Um, they even sold a piece of property and just gave a part of it, part of the proceeds to the church. There's not a problem with that. What they did is they lied and said that this was everything. And I don't want to spoil that story if you're not familiar with them. It's in Acts chapter 5, but uh, spoiler alert, they're not in Acts chapter 6. So just keep that in mind. So, um, so we've got Barnabas, and he, he is being an encouragement to fellow believers by, by what he's doing. Now, here's some things that happen between this introduction to Barnabas and the next time we hear about him. There's a guy named Saul that shows up. Saul um, is persecuting the church. We're introduced to Saul um, as he's holding, or they've actually laid the garments at Saul's feet while they're stoning Stephen to death. And it says in Acts chapter 8 that Stephen approved of it. And not only did he approve of it, but later on it says that he was ravaging the church. And he was asking for the leaders, the Jewish leaders, to give him permission to go and pull people out of their homes, people that were professing Jesus as Messiah, and putting them in jail, and some of them were being killed. So this guy was just ravaging the church, um, thinking he was being obedient. But yet he was totally opposed to Jesus. So you know the story. Saul, we also call him Paul, uh, on the road to Damascus, he's going, you know, taking this paper and he's going to go find people that are followers of Jesus and he's going to put them in jail and have some of them killed. And Jesus encounters them on the road to Damascus. It's like, why are you persecuting me? And Saul eventually, through that, becomes a believer. Now, interestingly enough, the first guy that God connects to him is another guy named Ananias. Um, and he goes and gets him and prays over him. And, but Saul becomes very, uh, he just, it's a 180. He goes from persecuting the church to he's in the synagogues and he's preaching Jesus. Okay. So some time goes by and he's coming from Damascus to Jerusalem where the disciples are. And he wants to join them. And <laughs> they don't want to do that. So here's what's going on. The next thing that Barnabas does that helps, uh, helps to encourage people is he's willing to take a risk. He was willing to take a risk. Let me read um, in Acts chapter 9. And when he, Saul, had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles 
and declare to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas took a chance because we don't know how much he knew. We don't know how much he had interacted with Paul, but he had heard and he believed. And I believe the Holy Spirit was telling Barnabas, it's okay. This guy truly is a believer. So he was willing to take a risk to encourage somebody. When you think about that, um, we don't have any writings from Barnabas, but we have a lot of writings from Paul. What if Barnabas had not spoken up and been an encourager for Paul? Paul was able to take the credibility that Barnabas had with the apostles and get them to accept him. Next thing that Barnabas did that was encouragement to others is he was willing to put his faith into action. And this is something that I had totally forgotten about um, until I was studying for this lesson. Um, so he, what's going on is the church in Antioch, people are professing Christ and the Jews are hearing, the Gentiles are hearing, and it's like this big deal. And so the church in Jerusalem says, well, we gotta figure out, let's see what's really going on. So who do they send? They send Barnabas. They're like, hey, let's take our, one of our true faithful guys and send him to the church in Antioch to see what is going on. And in Acts chapter 11, this is in verses 22 through 24, it says, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Bartimaeus to Antioch and when he came, he saw the grace of God. He was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast promise, steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And I'm glad they didn't stop it. He was a good man. Because a lot of times we think about what's good and who is good, and we're tempted to put it on the person. Barnabas was considered good because he was full of the Holy Spirit and he was faithful to the Lord. That's why he was defined as good. And then it said right after that, Barnabas is the one that went to Tarsus. Paul had been sent to Tarsus for protection. Barnabas said, I gotta go get him and bring him back to Antioch. And he went and got Paul and they stayed for a year teaching people at the church. And then you know that Barnabas and Paul went on the first missionary journey together. Now the fourth thing that we see that Barnabas does to encourage people is Barnabas was willing to offer forgiveness and willing to be patient with a young, immature believer. Because there's this guy named John Mark that went with him on the first missionary journey, but he leaves. He doesn't stay with him the whole time. We don't get an explanation about why he left, but boy, it caused a problem. It caused conflict. Um, in Acts 15, we see that after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with him John, called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them and Pamphylia and had not gone with them to work. And so there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed. So it doesn't go into detail, but sharp disagreement, there's, there's some words going on there. And there's a, there's a fight to the point that there's a separation. Now, some good things happen from that separation. One thing is this one missionary team all of a sudden became two. They can cover twice as much ground and get twice as much done. The other thing is Barnabas showing encouragement to Mark changed Mark's life. Mark grew and learned from his mistakes and later on, not only did he write the gospel, according to Mark, but in 2 Timothy, Paul is writing and said, hey, only Luke's here with me. Bring Mark when you come back because he's very useful to me for ministry. So Paul, whatever had happened, Paul had seen that there had been a change in Mark. And that change, I think, in part is because of Barnabas being willing to forgive and to be patient with this young believer who had made some mistakes, obviously. So, um, 
those are some things that, uh, that Barnabas can teach us about what it means to be an encourager. Now, there's a few more things that I want to talk about real quick um, that apply to the verse that we read in Thessalonians and applies to us today. One is that as believers, we were called to encourage one another because of that hope of heaven. Um, the last song we sang uh, before I got up here was an Ellie Hokum song. Now, I don't know who picked the music today, but good job because uh, old hymns and Ellie Hokum, that's good stuff. Um, but that song that we sang with you now uh, is an EP that she did. The last song on that EP is titled, We Shall Always Be With The Lord. And it's basically her singing 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. Now, it's interesting. She's, um, she's either using the New King James or the New American Standard um, and not uh, ESV. Because in the last verse, she actually says um, that we should comfort. She uses the word comfort instead of encourage one another. And those verses are used a lot of times when, um, when you're at a funeral uh, for someone who's a believer. And we're trying to be encouraged by the fact the church in uh, Thessalonica, there were people that had passed away that were believers. And people were concerned, what about them? What happened to them? Because they were literally, they were expecting Jesus to come back like that day, that week, that month. Um, and these words Paul wrote was to encourage them that, man, we're going to be together forever. And it's a comfort. It's a comfort to us. So thank you, whoever, whoever picked those songs this morning. Um, but we as believers ought to encourage each other because we have that hope of heaven. Um, second thing is that promise of heaven and that future restoration that God is going to bring to us, make us whole as believers, that ought to inspire us for present faithfulness today as we live through our lives. Um, our sin comes with a price. And ultimately, it's death. And for a believer, um, Jesus has paid that price for us. And that should... That should change us. That should change the way we behave. We should live our lives not that we're trying to earn salvation through works, but a life that is obedient because we know the cost that Jesus paid for us to even have an opportunity to spend eternity in heaven with him. So we're talking about encouragement. Encouragement um, is usually easy to take. Like We like people that are encouragers because they're like, telling us where to go, good job, that kind of stuff. Encouragement isn't always um, that easy. Sometimes it's a little more difficult. Let me tell you, tell you the story um, of me and a friend of mine named Stephen. Stephen's actually here, so we're still friends, even after this story. Um, but this particular story happened 30 years ago. So I had uh, graduated from Clemson. I worked for a private firm for a while, and I had just started work at the Department of Transportation and I'd worked there just long enough to earn um, the way that uh, leave works for that state job is you earn annual leave, which is for vacations and things like that. And then you earn sick leave, which is for doctor's appointments, dentist appointments, surgeries, whatever. So it's two pots of leave. Um, and I'd been there just long enough to uh, take a one week vacation with a buddy of mine. We went up camping into Maine and Quebec and had a great time. And we get back and, uh, and it's Christmas time. We're getting close to Christmas time. And I was dating somebody and it was not Leanne. I did not know Leanne or I'd have been trying to date Leanne, but this is pre-Leanne. Um, and I wanted to take my girlfriend to the Biltmore house to see the Christmas decorations. If you've ever been there, that's pretty, pretty neat. Um, but I like barely had an annual leave day. And so I'm talking to my boss. And he's like, Randy, it's like, you haven't used a day of sick leave, have you? I'm like, well, no. He said, well, just take a day of sick leave. Everybody does it. It's not that big a deal. It's just leave. And he goes, I'll, I'll cover for you. So my boss, who you know who he is, so I'll say his name, Ray, uh, is telling me this. And I'll confess, I'm like thinking that that's not that bad of an idea because who's going to know? 
and it's not a big deal. Well, we were in one room, nine of us, no cubes, no nothing. Like we could see everybody. There was no such thing as a private conversation in that room. Ray is a squad leader on my side of the room. Stephen is a squad leader on the other side. So later that morning, Stephen says, hey, Randy, you wanna go grab lunch? I'm like, of course. So we go to lunch, start talking, and Stephen says, Randy, I heard the conversation that y'all were having. And uh, everybody knows you're a believer. And it doesn't matter that everybody does that. Um, You're a believer, and that's not honest. And if you do that, you're being a bad witness to the others that are sitting in this room, uh, to others in this building. Um, And uh, I'll be honest with you, I didn't like hearing that. It kind of made me, I was a little aggravated because he was right. And I didn't want to hear it. Like, I hadn't done anything yet other than think about sinning. (laughs) But here's this guy that cared about me enough to confront me and say, hey, don't even go that way. Now, that was 30 years ago. Just so you'll know, I took annual, (laughs) and I didn't even marry her, so, you know. Um, But 30 years ago, this happens. About a year ago, Steve and I have known each other for for a long time. We've worked in different places together and just have stayed connected over the years, but um, a year or two ago, we got reconnected on a more regular basis, and, and I just brought that up to him, and doesn't even remember it because he was just doing what Stephen always does. He was speaking the truth to somebody's life. He didn't remember it. I did. 30 years later, I still remember it. And it even makes me think, I'm, I'm very thankful for Stephen, but it makes me think of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6. Um, and this is a different translation than what we normally use, but I think it hits it pretty well. It says, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. So when it comes to encouragement, sometimes it's hard to take. And if we're the encourager, that goes back to Barnabas taking a risk. Like, Stephen took a risk by confronting me and putting truth in front of me. And I'm thankful for that because enemies will kiss you all over. <laughs> they want to talk to you and, and try to convince you of things. But I'm, I'm thankful for a friend that encouraged me to not make a mistake and go down another road. And that same principle applies to children. We, we have a couple of kids in our church. <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed. Um, just maybe 25, 30% of our you know, weekly attendance is five or younger which is awesome. Um, but I was rereading a book um, titled Humility by a guy named C.J. Mahaney this past week. And there was a quote in there, and he's talking about parenting, and it kind of fits along with this as well. And the quote was, all parenting is ultimately a preparation for that day when your child will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account. That is very humbling as a parent. Because that day, more than likely, is going to happen decades after you've passed away. But as a parent, you're helping your children get ready for the day that we're all going to face. And so that's very, very humbling. Um, So think about that. Raising kids, you know, we all want to be an encouragement. Um, We all want it to be like that song from the Lego movie, Everything is Awesome. (laughs) Everything's not always awesome. Sometimes it's tough. And sometimes encouragement is difficult. Um, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it even when it's hard. And then finally, um, we should encourage one another in truth and not in empty, empty sentiments. Uh, has anybody ever run a marathon in here? Uh, okay, half marathon, 10K, 5K. Have you driven down the road? Okay, uh, all right, so um, I've run a couple of marathons. Uh, you know, marathon's a weird race because I've run the same marathon in back-to-back years, and one year was horrible, and the next year was great. It's like you can train, and it doesn't matter. It's what's the weather going to be, how are you going to feel that day. So the last marathon I ran was the fall of um, 13, and it was the Sphinx Marathon up in Greenville, which starts and finishes, actually finishes at home plate in the baseball stadium there, which is really, really cool. Um, 
So I'm running along, and at mile 23, there's a lady with this big sign, and she's cheering for us, and she's saying, go what you're doing, looking great. And she said, you're almost there. And my first thought was, no, I'm not. <laughs> like, if you were standing, like, at third base, <laughs> and I was finishing at home plate, that would be an accurate statement. But to me, and I think Darren laughed and ran past her and... Um, but that was an empty sentiment. It wasn't, it wasn't real. It wasn't truthful. Um, so when we're encouraging each other, um, it needs to be something that's based on the truth and not something that's, that's just a false hope or something that isn't lasting. Um, let me give you an example real quick. Um, I'm a Clemson grad, so I want to tell you this story, and I know that I'm the... Oscar's not here. He's a Clemson fan. I, I'm probably the only Clemson person in this room. Okay. Um, so, if you're not a Clemson person, while I'm telling this story, I want you to think about maybe South Carolina's two baseball national championships or their women's national championship. Or if there's a Chanticleer in here, your baseball championship. Or for Brad, the Eagles Super Bowl win. I want you to think about these things. Our Youngtown State's 50 national championships, uh, whatever your team is. So a couple years ago, Clemson won the national championship. The first time they did it, I was a freshman. 35 years later, it happened again. The day, technically, I guess it was the same day because the game wasn't over until after midnight. Um, and just to confess, I didn't stay awake. I went to sleep. I had to get up early. So I didn't know we had won until the next morning. Um, but there was a tweet from Desiring God that had a link to an article written by a guy who works um, for Piper and works for the Desiring God Ministries up in um, um, Minnesota. And this guy was born in 1981. His parents met at Clemson in the 70s. And so he was born the year they won their first national championship and his entire life he had heard about this. And he was wanting it to happen again. And he went through some lean years. Like the mid to late 90s were not good to Clemson football. Um, so he went through some lean years. So here it is. And the title of the article was The Greatest Day in a Fan's Life. And this is raw emotion. He's writing this less than 12 hours after it happened. And he said... It, it's the greatest day in a fan's life. Your team wins the championship. It doesn't get better than that. And he realized it wasn't as satisfying as he had hoped for all those years. It's, it's just a game. It's just a game. And unless you're South Carolina and you win back-to-back -back championships, it's only good for a year. So he's telling this story, and part of what he said is, that Jesus buried within each one of us an ache for a victory in our souls. And that victory that he's talking about, that God has implanted in us, isn't, it's not about a sports team. It's about the victory that Jesus Christ won on the cross. That's what he's talking about. Now, you know we're at Midland, so I don't think we're allowed to get up and preach without quoting either Tolkien or C.S. Lewis or Chesterton or somebody. Okay, so I've got a C.S. Lewis quote. So here's a C.S. Lewis quote from Mere Christianity. He said, If I find in myself a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, then most, the most probable explanation is that I was not made for this world. As believers, we're living in this world, we're to be part of this world, but we weren't made for this world. We were made for that time an eternity with Jesus. <laughs> Makes me think of another quote by someone who I don't think was a believer, I'm not sure, but John uh, J.D. Rockefeller, the first billionaire in modern times, wealthiest man of his day. And there's a famous quote you probably have heard. Somebody, a reporter asked him one time, how much money is enough? And this guy who was a multi-billionaire, his answer was just one more dollar. Like, it's never enough. Like, if your team wins the championship this year, it's not going to be enough. Nothing is going to be enough apart from Jesus. 
Now, real quick, the last two things that I want to share with you since we're talking about encouragement. Um, Anthony Bourdain is a chef, and he took his life earlier this summer. I don't know if y'all are familiar with him. Um, I'd never watched any of his Parts Unknown show on CNN uh, until after. But I used to watch him years ago on the Travel Channel. He was on a show called No Reservations. So, you know, I know nothing about this guy, but his job uh, made me jealous. Because his job, at least my view of it, he, went on, he was on permanent vacation. His job was to go to other countries, to spend time in other cultures, to get to know other people, to eat their food, their best food. And then, like, somebody's video, and, and he just talks about it. Like, that's his job. His job is to go on vacation. Um, but his suicide really, I don't know why, but it really impacted me this year. Um, because here's this guy that seems to have this great life that you would think that the rest of us, we wait for our vacation every year. But he got paid to do something like that. But yet he was unfulfilled. He, he didn't understand that there was hope. And so he took his own life. Um, some of y'all know this, but my, my nephew took his own life. It's been two years ago, this month. And today would have been his 23rd birthday. <clears throat> my mom is teaching a Bible study, and she wanted to borrow a commentary I had. And uh, so I dug it out for her, and, uh, and it was a different translation. It was NIV, which I haven't used in forever. So I dug out my old Bible, and as I was digging out my old Bible, I found a picture. And it was the first picture we ever had to read. And he was... Um, at a nurse at a orphanage in Calcutta, and this is my sister's middle kid. She's got five kids, so middle child. And Reed, this sounds like a, a cliche, but like he's the last person I would have thought that would have taken his own life. Smile all the time, always in a good mood, always joking. Um, my last contact with him was was a year ago tomorrow, or two years ago tomorrow. I wanted to, I think that's probably why Anthony Bourdain impacted me because you never know what somebody's going through. There's probably somebody in this room that's going through something and you're not telling anybody. So I want to encourage you to not assume that somebody's okay. We talk about believers encouraging believers and I had conversations with Reed, and he said all the right words, but I don't know. Anthony Bourdain was not a believer. I hope from the words you can now say on network television that you couldn't say when I watched No Reservation. Uh, I just, I don't, I, I'm sure, certain he wasn't. But don't, don't assume that whoever is around you that's got a smile on their face all the time has got it all together and isn't struggling with something. So I just want to encourage you to pay attention. And some of you lost good friends or get family the same way. And it's, it leaves a hole. Um, every week we um, take part in communion. And uh, I think you also have to talk about Andrew Peterson if you're up here. So, okay. I'm an Andrew Peterson fan. Uh, I think it's great when a young guy can play guitar. <laughs> Most of y'all think he's just an old dude. Uh, but he was kind of like my replacement when Rich Mullins passed away. Uh, that's when I first found out about him. So he's got this album. Uh, it was two albums ago, um, The Burning Edge of Dawn. And I bought the commentary edition. Like, if you don't have that, it's fantastic. It's like going to his concert. Like, I don't want to tell him this, but I actually got more from what he said in between the songs than in the actual songs. But, but he shared this part. His church is like us. They have communion every Sunday, and it's his favorite part of the service because after the singing, after the message, uh, they take part in this feast. Um, and uh, he said when he was thinking about this song, the song is, I want to say I'm sorry. And so he was reading this book on communion, and the author said that when you're taking communion, look around you. 
And remember, God wants the people around you at his table too. Because the story he's telling is that he's, got, he's looking around in his church and there are people he has serious, serious history with. People that he has hurt, people that, is, that have hurt him. Like we're a family. Midlands is a church family. Who can hurt you more than anybody? Your family, because they know everything about you and they know what works. So there are probably people in this room now that have hurt you or people that you have hurt. The neat thing about communion is, as believers, it's a time where that doesn't matter. God wants us all at that table with him. And so Andrew said that song is really about a triumph of grace. So this is a family meal. So if you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, you're still trying to figure out who Jesus is, and, and if, if, if there's a connection between you and him, we ask that you just don't participate. But if you're intrigued and want to know more about him, please talk to me, Matt, Hart, Brad, someone. Don't leave without finding out more about him. Don't wait. So the band's going to come up, and uh, let me lead us in prayer, and then we'll have our time of communion. Father, we do thank you for this time to be able to come before you, and we thank you especially for a time of communion where we can remember um, weekly the sacrifice that you made for us, um, that you laid down your body, and you sacrificed because only you could. And I pray that uh, not only will we take this time to observe um, communion, Father, but that we will be encouraged by your words in Scripture today to live our lives in a way that shows that we are aware of that price and that we are obedient to you in all we do. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.